Hey, hey, it's Sound and Groove Podcast for the final official episode of 2017. Coming right at you here from musicofevansmind.blogspot.com. And also, primarily, you can find it hosted on notthepublicbroadcaster.com in the podcast section. I am your host, Evan Dobigan. And if you haven't been keeping up, this is the second part of a two-themed episode, which I usually like to do. I pick uh, six episodes a year, and usually three themes go with it, but sometimes it can be, you know, one-themed episodes. This one is not one of those. This is part two of a theme I'm calling Color My World. These are uh, tracks that are, uh, uh, you know, referring to colors, either in the title or in the description inside the song, the lyrics, whatever, you know, whatever the subject material might be. So basically it has to do with, you know, discovering colors and all that stuff, you know, red, blue, white, green, black. It's a colorful uh, theme. Ha, ha, ha. So, (laughs) that being established, if you haven't listened to the first one, I suggest you do that first, but uh, those of you who are keeping up and uh, following up on that first episode... Welcome in, and uh, hope you enjoy some of the new songs that you're going to hear today, the ones I picked out. Let's get right to it, shall we? I'm going to start with a song that may be a little cliche for this type of theme, obviously, but uh, I don't know. I think it's uh, worth putting in here. It's uh, a monumental song, not just in the fact uh, you know, for songs with colors in the name, nor just for songs with the color purple in the title of it, but in general in rock, it's one of the early metal-ish type tunes, one of the early hard rock type songs. I mean, Cream had come up before this, but this is Jimi Hendrix's experience with Purple Haze. And I mean, there wasn't anything completely unprecedented before this, but it didn't, like what Cream had done didn't sound, it sounded meek by comparison. It sounded like a couple guys just sort of jamming away, trying to make as much noise as they could, but this sounded like something from an alien spaceship out of nowhere. And this guy, Hendrix, who sort of landed in the UK first, where, his, uh, where he was discovered, uh, where he was brought to after being discovered in New York nightclubs, playing the he played the Chitlin Circuit before that, which are like you know series of the uh, bars and theaters that uh, housed a lot of R and B and soul music in the early '60s. And his name was Jimi Hendrix, of course. Obviously, that's why the experience came out of that. After his you know his travels took him out of his hometown of Seattle around the U.S., he was discovered, brought to the U.K., and just blew everybody's minds. Where they were a little more receptive to a black man playing the guitar and playing a genre that a lot of uh, black listeners thought was uh, taken away. It was rock and roll was no longer identified with what they listened to. And uh, blues, I guess, was sort of still on the back burner in a small following. But mostly it was white Brits. It was young white British kids who were listening to the blues. So Hendrix had a natural audience when he went there. And this particular track was one of the monumental ones off of that debut for the band that he formed with Mitch Mitchell and Noel Redding called the Jimi Hendrix Experience. So let's get to Purple Haze from 1967. Here it is on the Sound of Group Podcast.
All right, Purple Haze from the Jimi Hendrix Experience, which was the second single off their tremendous debut, Are You Experience, in 67. And uh, really, they were going through something completely different with that recording process. There's so many different innovative things going on there with an Octavia sound effects machine used on the guitar. You got stereo panning going on and all kinds of echo and everything. It was just way different sonically than almost anything anyone else was doing in the UK, US, wherever. The Beatles, I guess, would have come close, but... There was nothing they did that changed an instrument to the extent that Jimmy sort of revolutionized the guitar on that particular track. And some people think the song's about a drug experience, and other people think it's science fiction type of writing, but Jimmy said it was kind of like a girl who thought was trying to use voodoo on him back in New York City when he was living there. So it's kind of got that kind of witchcraft vibe to it as well. So yeah, it's kind of like a potpourri of ideas, you might say. But uh, yeah, that's in the end. People are left it open to interpretation for themselves. Either way, it's one of the great guitar tracks of all time. Something a little sinister, too. you got a lot of Mixolydian and, and uh, dissonance going on amidst a pretty good melody and a pretty uh, amazing uh, rhythmic and uh, chordal structure, too. Let's, uh, let's not kid ourselves here. Huh? Anyway, <laughs> let's continue with some colorful songs here on Color My World Podcast Part 2. Sound of Groove Podcast, uh, the December 2017 one, the official last one, even though I'm putting this thing out here in January. Sorry, uh, you know, Christmas and the holidays and all that. So let's get to a Mellow Yellow by Donovan. A little more on the lighter side of the British music scene at the time than a guy like Hendrix would have been. Donovan started off uh, kind of like, um, I mean, he was compared to Dylan. He said he'd been performing that kind of folk music for a long time. And he wasn't even really 20 yet. He was still a teenager when he broke out. And in 1965, he was, you know, peddled as sort of Britain's answer to Bob Dylan and everything like that. He had kind of a twang to his voice. Did, like, uh, early tracks that uh, caught interest, like Catch the Wind and Universal Soldier, which is called a cover of a Buffy St. Marie song. Canadian uh, First Nations singer, by the way, if you were wondering uh, or didn't know. So Mellow Yellow, though, finds him in a little bit more of the psychedelic, swinging London kind of Carnaby Street scene. It's a little more musical, a little corny a little tongue-in-cheek but it just it works and for years everybody thought well this song is you know about a uh, electric vibrator or something like that it's a it's about a dildo oh my god like this is terrible <laughs> but you know uh, some people didn't think it was about that they thought it was smoking dried banana skins for hallucinogenic effect but donovan later confirmed that yeah they were talking about the electrical banana was talking about these new vibrators for ladies that were coming out oh but Donovan had heard about the rumor that Country Joe McDonald supposedly got going in the uh, music press about how smoking dried banana skins could make you go on a trip there, man. You know, Country Joe and the Fish back in San Francisco. Anyway, Donovan uh, put his own little uh, touch on it with this track, which was a big hit for him in late in 66. A little tidbit for you. Paul McCartney can be heard in this song. Not sing quite rightly in the background, which whispered by Donovan, actually. He's one of the revelers in that part where they get to like the whole musical, you know, a musical break with Trump with a uh, tuba and trombone and all that stuff. You hear a guy going, woo-hoo, yeah, yeah, that's actually Paul. So, yeah, that's him. So let's take a listen to that one, huh? Donovan Leach, um, or Donovan for short, with his uh, one of his signature tracks, the quite swinging and uh, finger-popping Mellow Yellow here on the Sound and Groove podcast, Color My World theme, right away. Just mad about saffron oh, Saffron's mad about me I'm just mad about saffron She 
He's just mad about me They call me Mellow Yellow Quite rightly They call me Mellow Yellow Quite rightly They call me Mellow Yellow I'm just mad about 14 Our 14's mad about me Mellow Yellow from Donovan, released late in 1966 on the Sound of Group podcast. This is really when he was at the height of his sort of swinging London thing, like I said. It was more of the flower power type of thing. And eventually he came to be, you know, really widely associated with the whole hippie dip movement. <laughs> uh, he was even into the whole Indian mysticism thing, went to see the Maharishi around the same time the Beatles did, got into that. But, you know, uh, the late 60s were a good time for him commercially, and then in the early 70s things started to wane. And it never really got back for him. He became more of a relic of his era, but some pretty good music in the time, you know. He was a really accomplished folk singer at such a young age. and uh, But he transitioned well from that into a different kind of uh, sound. One of the first people to use sitars and tabla on uh, Western recordings. He had brought Indian music into the whole thing. Like, he seemed to be just ahead of the curve that the Beatles were even going on at the time. The music, the composition and stuff wasn't as strong, but he was, you know, on the right path sonically, anyhow. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so how about another track with a color in its hand, just like this whole theme? It's a track called A Pair of Brown Eyes by the Pogues off their tremendous 1985 album, Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash, which is... And it comes from a quotation attributed to Winston Churchill, where he said, Don't talk to me about naval tradition. It's nothing but rum, sodomy, and the lash. And the band saw this quotation and thought, oh, that's pretty good. Uh, maybe we should, you know, borrow that for the title. And they did, and it was tremendous. As their punk Celtic uh, thing really took off on this one. It was their second album, uh, and uh, Elvis Costello produced it, so he helped 
focus the whole energies of the band quite clearly, which is not easy to do when Shane McGowan's your lead singer and one of your main writers, and he's, you know, even then he was a drunken mess, I suppose, <laughs> was a complete sh sh uh, shambles of a person uh, who just recently celebrated his 60th birthday somehow. That is a minor miracle in itself right there. This man is still alive. You, you, I just have no idea how he's managed to not die from all the things he's done to himself over the years. But anyway, the Pogues were fantastic, and they really captured the kind of like off-the-wall charm of a guy like Shane McGowan before things really went south for him, you know, personally, and was kicked out of his own band five years after this, actually. And uh, this is one of the better tracks on the album. In fact, it was released as a single and peaked as high as number 72 in the UK charts, which isn't really anything special, but considering it's a Celtic band, I think that's not bad. So let's get right to it from 1985, The Pogues with a Pair of Brown Eyes, right here on the Sound of Groove podcast. There's the Pogues with a pair of brown eyes 
from 1985 off their tremendous album, Rum Slotted Me in the Lash. It's, uh, this finds uh, Shane McGowan really having a breakthrough as a songwriter after a decent debut, actually. Red Roses for Me, it was called. And uh, them touring on a little pub circuit for a while. And there was a controversial sort of blend of punk and Celtic uh, music that they did that sort of, you know, really inspired a lot of groups coming forward. Of course, one of the more prominent of those would happen to be the Dropkick Murphys out of the United States. But this was sort of, you know, uh, offended a little bit of the traditionalists, right? You know, like the the Limelighters, the Dubliners, and all those other, you know, sort of uh, Celtic folk, Irish folk kind of groups. The Chieftains, I I should mention as well. And um, Shane McGowan based it on the melody of Wild Mountain Time, which is a traditional composition, also known as Will Ye Go, Lassie Go, in a traditional Irish folk style. And, uh, yeah, this one was their first single to make the UK Top 100, but, you know, didn't get, like, hugely far, made it to number 72. But for a punk Celt band, that's pretty good. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, one of the only albums where you can, I mean, the songwriting is very strong. And there are some covers and there's some instrumentals, but it all works so well. It's like a soundtrack almost to a movie that never got made. Um, somehow Elvis Costello managed to cut through the the mirror and the drunkenness, the notorious uh, you know inebriation of Shane McGowan to get him to sing clearly. You could actually understand what he says, which is not the case on most uh, <laughs> records he made, especially if you hear him live. I mean, it was just garbled gibberish because he was wasted half the time that he was doing it. Oh, maybe no, more than half the time anyway. So yeah, let's uh, go to another track now on this uh, Color My World podcast theme. I'm going to go with a song called Blackheart Man by Bunny Whaler, and it's the uh, title track of his solo debut album, which came out in 1976. Now, Bunny, he took the last name of the group he was in, who was born Neville O'Reilly Livingston. Of course, like uh, his bandmates in the Whalers, Bob Marley and Peter Tosh converted to Rastafarianism in the 60s, and that became a tenet, a core principle of their band, obviously. But uh, when they hit sort of an international fame of some sort, coming in the UK mostly in 1972 with Catch a Fire, the focus sort of came to Marley, who was one of the principal songwriters and the frontman who did most of the vocals. He had the star persona, you might say. And so Tosh and Whaler were kind of marginalized. And so um, they left the band. At the end of 73, Bunny Whaler quit. And he would uh, go on to, you know, do have a more rootsy, traditional kind of career in terms of uh, the message, you know, the Rastafarianism that he preached in his music and, of course, the the reggae in it. He didn't really go out to try a lot of new things the way Bob Marley maybe. I mean, he experimented, but he never had that sort of fame. I mean, Marley, obviously, the solo career he had is it almost like picks up where the Whalers left off. Bob Marley, Bob Marley and the Whalers, actually, for a little while, he just sort of replaced them as, as a backup group and kept that um, for a little while without, you know, before he just went to solo records that had just his name credited to it. But it didn't take. It wasn't until 1976 that uh, Blackheart Man came out, the solo debut, as I said, for Bunny, and it's one of his best. He considers it his best, in fact, actually. But uh, Bunny uh, really uh, sort of was maybe a little more the laid-back spirit of the of the group. Uh, Bob Marley wrote more about political things for a little while, and then he sort of slipped into kind of a more peaceful uh, outlook on things. And Peter Tosh was a little more the rebel in the band, of course. Now, he met a violent death, too. So Bunny's the last surviving whaler, I should say, too. So that's rather, import- rather important to note, I'd say. Anyway, uh, Blackheart Man, let's get to it right now. Here from 1976, it's Bunny Whaler on the Sound of Groove podcast. Blackheart Man, I said, don't go near him. Blackheart Man, Or even lions fear him. Tikadi black heart man, little children. I said, don't go near him. 
Blackheart Man by Bunny Whaler from 1976 on his solo debut, which uh, the album had the same title as that song. And uh, that's basically on a personal experiences for him. The Blackheart Man was kind of a fable uh, when he was growing up, by the way, in the same village as Bob Marley, who later became his stepbrother because he was raised by a single father, and she, he uh, Marley was being raised by his mother, and they got together and um, got married and had a daughter of their own, in fact. So there you go. They have a mutual sister, in fact as stepbrothers, and of course, you know, they shared the bond of being in the band, one of the more seminal, if not the most seminal group that's ever come out of reggae. Um, so yeah, Blackheart Man was based on sort of like a fable that parents would tell that strangers might walk up to you and find you in the, you know, in a, in a situation and 
take you in and take, rip your heart out or something horrible. You know, all the all the kids were were scared of fearful of the Blackheart Man who was supposed to be kind of um, you know take advantage of you, I guess, if you were out alone somewhere in the countryside. Anyway, you know, one of those kind of things, one of those kind of uh, old tall tales you hear as a kid, which, of course, you know, he heard, obviously, growing up in uh, the neighborhood of Nine Mile in St. Anne Parish in Jamaica, in the county of Middlesex, which apparently is uh, located in the middle of the eastern and western ends of the islands, you know, just right dead center on the north coast of things there in Jamaica. Anyway, we're going to move on. So, away from uh, the bunny whaler, Blackheart Man, we go to Green-Eyed Lady, a 1970 hit for a uh, little-known group out of Denver, Colorado called Sugarloaf. You know, a psychedelic kind of rock hit you'll hear here. It's got a little jazziness to it. There's organ solos and all kinds of stuff. And some of this crunchy uh, guitar noise sound that's a bit Jimi Hendrix. Um, of course, a lot of guys were impersonating him back then. And this was their first of two top ten hits. Later, they had a top ten called Don't Call Us, We'll Call You, which was apparently inspired by their uh, fight to get this song released as a single. And, of course, it's smashing success, redeemed their, uh, their belief in it. But, of course, they chronicled that sort of you know difficulty of the record company on Don't Call Us, We'll Call You. And uh, other than that, they didn't have any major hits, but this one here is kind of one of those psychedelic classics that always ends up on compilation and LPs or CDs over the years. And uh, it's, you know, it, the psychedelic era had kind of died off by this point, but so this is like straddled between the psychedelic era and the more natural predecessor for it, which is hard rock or heavy metal. So, you know, groups like Alice Cooper and Deep Purple were playing sort of a blend of that type of thing, and obviously had a little bit of roots in the psychedelic side of things. Um, and uh, others went for more punk sound, but then some went for the more elaborate one that kind of straddles the line between progressive and the garage rock anyway because i mean really psychedelia went off in so many different directions that influenced many different styles of music even though it was sort of a passing phase in its own time anyway enough about ranting on uh, the uh, musical progression progressive style of uh, psychedelia when we can get to sugarloaf playing this song so let's take a listen to that it's green-eyed lady from 1970 on the santa group podcast it's sugarloaf take a listen
There you go. It's Green Eyed Lady from Sugarloaf, you just heard. One of those tracks that was popular enough to be on AM radio, and also you could hear in it in its uh, full, nearly six minute version on FM. Because back then it just seemed like you'd, you could straddle the lines between the two of them. I don't know what it was, but of course AM had its own music that was uh, significant or, you know, um, uh, independent of FM. It never would have played on FM. You wouldn't have heard those bubblegum acts like the Partridge Family or the Osmonds who were big in 1970. I mean, nothing was... <laughs> there was a lot of great music in 1970, but a lot of the most popular stuff was that kind of pap, I'm afraid to tell you people, that it wasn't all great in 1970, but hey, you know, there was quite a bit of amazing stuff being done, obviously, that year and beyond. Um, and uh, that would... Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'd put that in that stratosphere, but Green Eyed Lady's a real jazzy kind of uh a bit uh witchy kind of number you know what i mean like a little it sounds like a little witchcraft is going on there a little halloween like a little haunting but uh also pretty groovy man anyway let's go on from uh that to another track here on the part two as we're inching toward the end of this uh color my world podcast theme to officially end 2017 on the sound of group podcast anyway it's called code of many colors from dolly parton and it's a title track of her 1971 album, which is widely regarded as perhaps the best studio album she ever put out. And it's one of the better country studio albums ever, really. I mean, this was a time when they were tossing off two or three LPs. Back in the 60s and 70s, they would just throw them out in the market and there would be a few hit singles in the filler. They really hadn't moved beyond what the original format of the LP was when it was, uh, when it was created. Uh, by the late 60s in pop and rock music, it had become kind of an art form. You could put a whole concept on there, but really people in country weren't going for it as much. There'd be themed albums, don't get me wrong, but a lot of the material was rather, you know, mediocre filler kind of stuff. But Dolly Parton even, you know, was guilty of that with a lot of the albums she put out. Although her classic country period, you know, she probably uh, spent less time focusing on the LPs and the singles, whereas it was more effort put into the LPs so she could sell more. She could be more commercially profitable in the pop era, which began at the end of the 70s for her. But at this point, she was still establishing herself as a major country uh, smash hit superstar. And Code of Many Colors reflects on her days of poverty growing up, and it's the favorite song she's ever written um, in her mind. Uh, she was still doing duets of Porter, Porter Wagoner back then, who was a country star himself, who, you know, like took all this pride and, you know, uh, credit for discovering Dolly and all this other crap. But, you know, they had some decent ballads, but her best stuff was on her own. And it talks about how her mother stitched together a coat for her out of rags that were given to the family. And while she did it, she told her the biblical story of Joseph and his coat of many colors, of course. You know, that's a biblical story. It's not just made up for Broadway. Hey, hate to break it to you. Um, and, of course, you know, the kids at school laughing at fun of her because she was poor and it looked, she looked all, you know, um, ratty and stuff. But then she says, you know, by the end, that uh, only, one is only poor, only if they choose to be. Um, she knew they didn't have any money, but she felt as rich as she could in the coat of many colors that her mother made for her. So, you know, a heartwarming message at the end of the whole thing, right? And uh, that kind of uh, heartwarming, uplifting message uh, struck a chord with people, and it uh, it gone down as one of the great tracks she ever did, and kind of a little bit of a, you know, uh, country milestone track over the years, kind of a cultural touchstone. And it was a number four uh, U.S. hot country songs on the Billboard charts hit, but goes beyond that. I mean, it's not really what it was as a hit. And the album itself around there has got 
plenty of amazing songs on it and uh give it a look i mean check it out it's uh it's one of her more uh, crowning achievements anyway let's listen to it it's dolly parton with her wonderful high pitch voice from 1971 on the sound group podcast with coat of many colors again back to the seasons of my youth I recall a box of rags that someone gave us and how my mama put the rags to use there were rags of many colors but every piece was small and I didn't have a coat and it was a way down in the fall Mama sewed the rags together So in every piece we loved She made my coat of many colors That I was so proud of As she sewed she told a story From the Bible she had read About a coat of many colors Joseph wore and then she said Perhaps this coat will bring you Good luck and happiness And I just couldn't wait to wear it And Mama blessed it with a kiss My coat of many colors That my Mama made for me Made only from rags But I wore it so proudly Although we had no money I was rich as I could be My mama made for me So with patches on my britches And holes in both my shoes In my coat of many colors I hurried off to school Just to find the others laughing And making fun of me In my coat of many colors My mama made no, I couldn't understand it, for I felt I was rich, and I told them all. Dolly Parton in her country superstar prime before, of course, you know, about six or seven years later, tackling Hollywood and being in movies and, you know, going for a more contemporary pop sound, which lost her a lot of fans, but also gained her a ton. I didn't really, you know, care much for her 80s output and her mainstream Dolly stuff. Years later, she got back to her roots and had some actual, actually pretty tremendous bluegrass albums, proving her musical ability as a songstress, as an interpreter, as a writer even as well. I mean, here's the woman who wrote I Will Always Love You, and while you can, you know, debate which version is the best, um, Whitney Houston turned that into a massive hit, and of course there was something to that song, obviously. It must have been a great song if it captured the public's attention to that degree. Anyway, let's move on away from that to our last song here in this particular Sonic Group podcast episode. It's uh, called Weasel and the White Boys Cool, and it's by Ricky Lee Jones, who burst upon the scene in 1979. Her debut album, self-titled debut album, came out in 1979 in the spring of that year, and it had a lot of you know interesting tracks on it. It presented sort of a jazz boho kind of uh, streetwise youngster in, the, in Ricky Lee Jones uh, that, you know, they had touches of sort of like L.A. chic. There was a bit of a jazz undercurrent to it, like I said. She had been a romantic item with Tom Waits for a few years before that. 
Um, after arriving in LA in the mid '70s, she got to work performing and writing in the area. And then, of course, you know the usual story gets discovered, and her debut album was nominated for a Grammy and all that great stuff. She skyrocketed to fame and was well known for her beret that she wears in the album cover. Um, but then success kind of you know got a little overwhelming. There was a crippling cocaine addiction for her, and her relationship with Waits ended, which left her reeling. But she lamented the fact that she didn't think he really was that affected by it. And her song on her second album called "A Lucky Guy," but um, about how he you know he doesn't worry about her anymore when she's gone. But anyway, before that sort of like self-pitying and everything like that, the debut album was a little bit sprightly and a little bit you know finger popping and sort of um, it was a bit like Waits in his jazz era. But you know she was like the female version of it, so she got a lot of comparisons favorably and unfavorably to that sort of style. And uh, but of course she was more commercially successful. The album has more of a real uh, sheen to it—a studio uh, manufactured LA sound from the late '70s, very cleanly produced and professionally recorded with lots of the cream of the crop from um, from the session musicians around there. You know, you got a few appearances from some bigger names like Randy Newman playing some synthesizer and Dr. John, but also lesser knowns that played on a lot of people's records then in the area, like Tom Scott on horns and Victor Feldman, the percussionist. Um, Buzz Fightin' and Chuck Finley, Steve Gadd, you know, Andy Newmark, Jeff Porcaro, two fantastic drummers. All in all, a lot of really talented musicians. But anyway, we're going to get to that track here from that particular album. It's Weasel and the White Boys Cool on the Sound and Groove Podcast.
There you go. Uh, like Ricky Lee Jones with Weasel and the White Boys. Cool. Maybe that's a word that gets a little overused in an album. You got a track called Coolsville as well. So it sort of played up a real persona that maybe some critics thought was a little played out, a little, uh, little bit tacky, or maybe a little bit, you know, cliche. Whatever the case, it was a big success for her. Uh, and uh, really skyrocketed her to prominence. And she was a critical darling in her early years, even though there were a few people who uh, thought, you know, maybe detracted from it. But nonetheless, there you go. That's the end of the episode. That's the end of the theme. I hope you enjoyed these two episodes that kick off or close out, rather, 2017 here on the Sound of Group podcast. We'll be back in 2018. Late in February is the target date for when I'm going to put them out. But <laughs> they'll be the uh, new themed episodes. You can bank on that. And I hope you will follow me with uh, those uh, when they do come out. You know, keep an eye out for it on the Sound of Group podcast. You can find on uh, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. Fantastic site, lots of culture, about politics, sports, music, you name it, the writing, the podcast, it's all there. This is just one of many great facets of it. And uh, I'm your host, Evan Dobkin, bidding you adieu for 2017 officially, the podcast, even though I put them out in 2018. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I hope you uh, had a great time. I did making these, so enjoy, and uh, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.